and welcome to another episode of the Duct Tape Marketing Podcast. This is John Jantz, and my guest today is Matthew Dixon. He is the co-author of The Challenger Sale and The Effortless Experience, and he's also a group leader of the financial services and customer contact practices at CEB, and he is the co-author of a new book we're going to talk about today called The Challenger Customer, Selling to the Hidden Influencer Who Can Multiply Your Results. So, Matt, thanks for joining me. Hey, John, how you doing? Uh, thank you for having me on again. Yeah, so you are a repeat guest, um, and I want to—I do want to, uh, I know that many people are familiar with the Challenger sale. It was obviously, it was a, a, a huge hit uh, for you guys uh, a couple of years ago, and uh, I, I really think one of the messages out of there, in fact, I write a lot about the changes in marketing and sales, and, you know, I've, yeah. about a year or two ago, I started concluding that, that what's really changed is the way people buy. Uh, and that yeah. that's that's the big change, and I think that that's really been uh, the basis of a lot of your work. Um, the there was a survey I think you cited in the uh, Challenger sale that fifty uh, I may get the numbers wrong, but something like fifty seven percent of uh, some folks you surveyed exactly say, exactly fifty seven percent. Yeah, okay. <laughs> yeah. And, and and I'm guessing that number's seventy percent now. It, it might be. Yeah, yeah, it might be. I think the um, you're right. The number. Um, uh, for the the listeners um, uh, on the podcast, the uh, the number that John's referring to, we found in our research, original research um, around the challenger sale, is the big thing that was challenging, no pun intended, um, uh, sales organizations and marketing organizations at suppliers um, at B two B companies was this fact that um, customers really no longer needed salespeople the way they used to need salespeople, and the the thing behind that was that. Um, almost 57, almost 60%, 57% uh, to be precise, according to our data, of the customer's purchase journey was actually over before they ever ever reached out to a salesperson from the supplier organization. So that told you, you know, this customer's out there already answering the question, hey, what's keeping me up at night? What are my needs? They're kind of diagnosing their own needs. They're thinking about the different ways of solving those problems, Um, the alternative ways of doing it with suppliers or partners. You know, what are the solutions we could buy that could help us solve this business problem and get after this business opportunity? And then they stack rank them on a short list, and then they call the salespeople. They kind of issue the RFP, and the bake-off process commences, and that puts the salesperson in a really tough spot of, you know, at that point, there's not a whole lot to do other than negotiate around price. And so, you know, who are the salespeople that can kind of – you know, get in early that can undo that phenomenon. Um, and that's how we kind of came across all that research around Challenger. But I agree 100% with what you're saying. This is at its core a change in the way that customers are buying. I mean, the, the ways that we've sold for the past few decades uh, were, you know, ripe for that time, but then uh, something changed. And it, it wasn't us, it was the customers and, uh, and how they started buying very differently. So uh, a lot of what you did in the Challenger sale was was really suggest that you had to think about sales differently. You had to think about who salesperson was uh, differently. Where yep. does the Challenger customer fit into that you know continued journey yeah. that you're ex- exploring? Yeah, I, John. To be honest, you know, one of the um, I think one of the you know Challenger was interesting um, because it's I think it sparked a lot of debate out there around the right way to engage customers, um, what really is the value of a sales conversation, and frankly, of a salesperson. And, you know, what's the right profile of that salesperson? As you know, you know, from the title of the book, we argued that it was challenger salespeople, and that's what our data suggested, uh, more so than relationship builder sales salespeople. Um, these are people who come in and teach customers new things, um, 
uh, frankly, things they didn't know about their own businesses um, to really reframe the way they thought about opportunities out there and do so in a way that led to the unique capabilities that they were there to sell, uh, the products and solutions and services they were there to sell, the unique capabilities of their firms. And um, so it, it sparked a lot of debate. And, you know, one of the things that came out of this, um, just a bit of an autobiographical kind of moment here, I think one of the fair criticisms, to be honest, about Challenger is that, you know, Challenger is really uh, arguably about the first part of that buying journey. You know, we come in, we challenge that customer with a provocative insight, a counterintuitive insight, something they didn't know themselves, and it gets them to rethink um, not just who we are as suppliers, but more importantly, what they're trying to accomplish as customers. It gets them to, to question fundamental beliefs and assumptions about their own business. But I think as some critics came out and said, it's like, look, that's a great approach to dealing with this customer who's 57% of the way down the purchase journey, he's done all this due diligence, they've done all this homework on their own, they think they know what they need, and then they call you in to try to squeeze you on price. That's a great way to, to sell in that world. But we all know that there's a whole lot that happens after that first challenger interaction, right? We put that big idea on the table and the customer says, wow, I never thought of it this way before. Well, there's still a pretty long road to hoe before you get a signed deal. And um, in, in complex sales and B2B sales is way more complicated, I think, as we all know, than just doing a single great first visit. As powerful as that approach is around challenger, it was really just the tip of the iceberg. And so what we tried to do in this um, second book, The Challenger Customer, is carry us through from we've got this customer, we've, we've done the challenger thing, if you will, by provoking them with a unique and powerful insight that leads back to what makes us unique and great as suppliers. Now what do we do? And when we started to dig into this, we found a whole new phenomenon that uh, really surprised us um, in some kind of new and powerful ways um, that uh, suggested that uh, just going out and challenging isn't enough. There's a lot more to do. I mean, what we stumbled upon is this fact that even these great challenger pitches, these great insights that we put on the table with our customers often will fall victim to um, the ever-expanding set of stakeholders who then need to come in and weigh in on the decision and weigh in on the solution on the customer side. It's just really this notion of consensus buying, uh, consensus decision-making that has really come to permeate uh, B2B sales and, and is another big change that we're seeing in the way that customers make decisions. Not only are they learning on their own 57% of the way through the purchase journey before they contact the salesperson, but what we found is on average today, there are 5.4 stakeholders. In fact, some, some of our own customers have told us, for us, it's not 5.4 stakeholders. It's like 5.4 committees of stakeholders who need to weigh in before they buy anything. And I think we've, in some respects, we've done that to ourselves, right? We're, we're not selling products anymore. Today, we're selling complex solutions. And those solutions touch many different parts of the customer's business. And so they are bringing in all those stakeholders and those different points of view to weigh in on what we put on the table, on the proposal we put forth. But it's not only that. I think it's also legacy sort of hangover and risk aversion from the downturn, which now feels like it's long in the rearview mirror. But I think some of those, um, that risk aversion has kind of stayed with us. I think the other thing that we're finding is it's, it's really, frankly, a shift in the way companies are making decisions today. Customers are much less likely today than ever before to simply decree from the senior most levels, here's, guys, here's what we're going to go do, and we're going to go buy from this supplier, and we're going to spend a million bucks on this solution. Now, those same decision makers are deferring to their teams. They're looking for consensus. It's a shift from what we've found in other parts of our business and other research we've done from hierarchical decision making to more network-based and consensus decision making. All of this compounds um, 
or, or uh, um, comes together to really make that job of getting that single stakeholder to uh, get everyone else on board really, really difficult. 5.4 stakeholders involved in a purchase decision, if not more than that, in the probability as we get every additional person we bring to the table that we're going to get any decision whatsoever um, goes down dramatically with each incremental person who's added to the committee. And it's not just the numbers of those people, it's the diversity of their perspectives. You know, this person's from HR, that person's from legal, this person's from procurement, that person's an end user, this person's from IT. And they all come in with different agendas. And at the end of the day, um, all they can really agree on is the lowest common denominator stuff, avoid risk, save money, uh, maintain the status quo, don't rock the boat. Um, and that's why so often we go in with this great, um, great pitch, even a challenger pitch is great idea. We get one person bought in, but they can't get the rest of the organization bought in, and that we wind up in what we call the solutions graveyard. It's sort of where good ideas go to die. And so this book is really about carrying us through that second part of the journey, navigating that consensus minefield. And the, the big finding was this, that what we found is challengers not only go in and challenge, it's actually specifically who they challenge that matters a lot. They actually look for their twins on the customer side and leverage those people to forge that necessary consensus to end up with a, a signed deal at the end of the journey. And that's really who you're calling this hidden influencer. Um, that's right. That's right. As part of the subtitle. So tell me a little bit about, uh, you know, how that, I, I think there's, this is probably a two part question, which is probably dangerous because we'll get lost, but. <laughs> well, you, uh, you know how long my answers are. <laughs> <for one> part, <laughs> but, uh, um, you know, I'm sure that salesperson is out there saying, look, I want to get involved in the customer journey much earlier. Yeah. Um, and, and then, of course, this, you know, I've got to find this hidden influencer who is maybe going to be the person I tap early on because that person knows, you know, the challenge that I'm bringing or the insight that I'm bringing yep. and, and it re- resonates. So so how do they get involved earlier? How do they find that, that hidden influencer? Yeah, a great question. So we, uh, we actually replicated, I think one of the things that was powerful about Challenger is that we were able to break up salespeople into those five different types. You, know, you had um, challengers, relationship builders, lone wolves, problem solvers, and hard workers. And, um, and so that was a powerful kind of technology that was uh, data-driven that we found in, uh, in the research. We did the same thing with customers, actually. And uh, I think it would have been convenient if we had also found five types of customers, uh, but we actually found seven types of customers. So uh, let me, um, different let me kind different of kind of matrix and illustration now. Huh? You can't just have one. Yeah, that's right. right. That's right. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Like, life in the customer world is uh, is complex, and um, and uh, we, so we found is um, there are uh, the first three um, who I'm going to call um, the mobilizers, and I'll tell you why in just a moment. We've got um, uh, go getters. These are really project and execution focused uh, people. We know these folks when we engage with them. As a salesperson, they're immediately taking that idea we put on the table and trying to think through what's the project plan, what's the change management journey, how are we going to actually execute on this. Um, you've got skeptics. They are kind of who they sound like. They, these are the people you sit down with who you put that big insight on the table, that challenger insight, and they are immediately trying to poke holes in the argument, really pressure test all the data, all the assumptions, and figure out why is it wrong? Why is it wrong for them? Why does it not apply? It's, it's a tough conversation, frankly, as a salesperson. Then you've got teachers. Uh, teachers are kind of the blue ocean strategy folks. These are the folks who are all about um, uh, telling a big story, communicating a change vision um, to the rest of the organization. They're often the kind of people that you know your CEO before he or she goes out and announces a strategy change for the organization. Kind of will tap them and say, "Hey, 
how do you think this story will resonate? Do you think I'm telling, and you think I'm going to capture the hearts and minds of folks? Because they're really great storytellers, these folks. Now, we call these folks mobilizers. Um, so that's the first group. The second group uh, we call talkers. Um, you can probably guess what these folks are like. But you got three types of talkers. You got friends. Um, they are who they sound like. They enjoy meeting with salespeople. They view it as a way to continue to build their network, just kind of stay plugged into what's going on out there in the vendor world. Um, they're always willing to, you know, you schedule a three o'clock and they'll go ahead and cancel their four o'clock. So you continue the conversation. They always want to meet whenever you're in town, uh, very generous with their time. You've got guides. Uh, guides are the people who will, um, network you with all of their colleagues. They'll tell you, you know, who holds the purse strings, who sits on what committee, how decisions get made. They're kind of the oversharers of the group. So they'll probably tell you the guy down the hall is about to get fired and he doesn't know it yet. So they'll sometimes tell you things you feel a little bit uncomfortable with, but they, they, um, uh, they traffic in information. Um, and then you've got climbers. And climbers are um, the people who are kind of the whiffling folks or the what's in it for me, right? Um, they're interested in talking to vendors and suppliers insofar as it means an expanded role for them and increased kind of fiefdom or responsibility. Those three we call talkers. And then there's a, a seventh type of stakeholder we call the blocker. Blockers are, um, uh, well, they're blockers. They don't really like meeting with any salespeople because they're really pro status quo. They're not interested in um, uh, introducing new ideas. Now, the reason they, we call they, the they first can, three, they can say no, but they can't say yes. That's a, that's exactly right. <laughs> and you know, the, the reality is, um, and interestingly, we found that none of these types of stakeholders actually correlate with seniority at all. So I think um, uh, you're as likely to find a CEO or a senior decision maker who's a blocker hmm. as you are to find one who's a talker or a mobilizer. It just you can't find them on an org chart. It's more of a psychographic kind of. Um, uh, a segmentation. But the reason we call the first three mobilizers and the second three talkers is that we went out and we did two things. First, we we put all these attributes of these different stakeholders in front of salespeople. We asked the salespeople in our in our survey, who would you target? As I said, who do you think is the right stakeholder to hit your wagon to? And there was no overlap between the, the two groups. So what you found was high performers put all their eggs in the mobilizer basket. They said, that is the person I want to sell to. And it varied. Some salespeople said, I prefer some to teachers, some to, um, uh, to skeptics, some to uh, go-getters. But generally speaking, all high performers put their eggs in the mobilizer basket. All of your average performers, and especially those relationship builder salespeople, put their eggs in the talker basket. Because they wanted to meet with people who are friendly, who are, frankly, who are kind of like them, right? right. They're willing to dish the dirt. They're willing to network you. They're willing to, they're generous with their time. Um, the interesting thing is when we tested these stakeholders themselves on their willingness and ability to forge consensus, to get people around the table and have the hard conversations that need to be had um, to hold hands in a new way forward, what we found is mobilizers, as the name suggests, test, test off the charts in terms of their willingness and ability to drive change and to forge consensus across diverse and honestly dysfunctional buying committees. Talkers test um almost flat to negative on their willingness and ability to do that. So in other words, they're happy to talk. They're just not happy to go and do anything about it. And they're certainly not happy to have the tough conversation. And so when you think about it, um, what this really means, a long way of saying what we found was that challengers actually, frankly, sell to challengers on the customer side. And that's how we got the name of the book, the challenger customer. They are looking for their twin, uh, a mobilizer on the customer side who can take their vision, their big idea, and forge consensus across that diverse and dysfunctional group of stakeholders that we know is expanding every single day, is involving more people, and is much more likely, absent that strong voice at the center, to end up in the status quo or in no decision land. 
your relationship builders are really targeting these talkers and targeting people who look like themselves. Because frankly, conversations with mobilizers are hard. They're, they're uncomfortable. They're not, they're not fun. And so they look for people just like themselves uh, and, and they then are surprised that nothing actually happens. The big idea they got somebody excited about just sort of withers on the vine and maybe they're talking about a big solution, but the customer kind of defaults to a, you know, a low margin commoditized product purchase at the end of the day, if that. Um, so that's really the, the crux of the, the kind of framework, this, this challenger customer, what we mean by that. And that's we think the linchpin for traversing that uh, journey on the back end after you get somebody excited, it's not just that you get somebody excited, it's who you get excited, and then how do you use them to actually forge that consensus on the customer side. So in your experience, um, is this more individual psychographic makeup or uh, can the culture of a company actually drive more? You know, I mean, could you actually look at a company and doing your research and say, hey, this company has more mobilizer yeah. tendencies from a cultural standpoint? Yeah, it, it's a great question. Um, one, uh, somebody I spoke to just recently was asking me, um, do I think that some companies are more like you said, more mobilizer-ish and some are more talker-ish. And what he, what he said, as I, he said, let me put it bluntly, do you think some companies are just committed to mediocrity? Do you think they're never going to, you know, there just are, there's not enough mobilizerness in the water that you as a salesperson are wasting your time selling a big provocative vision, selling a solution. Because at the end of the day, when we're talking about solution selling, we're really talking about selling change. And it's hard to do that when there's nobody willing to kind of carry the baton and, and drive that change internally. Now, I think the first point you made is, um, is right on, that this is a psychographic thing um, and is an individual thing. Um, one of the questions we get asked a lot is, hey, what if somebody is a, you know, they're a mobilizer for my competitor and they're a blocker for me? And we said is that you're thinking about it the wrong way. These folks, the interesting thing about them is that they're very supplier agnostic. They don't mobilize for one supplier over another. They mobilize for one idea over another. And so what, uh, that's really the way you need to think about it. So it's a very a deeply personal and individual thing. What you might find is that a mobilizer for one idea, actually that same person may actually be a blocker for another idea or a talker on another idea. So that it actually changes quite a bit. It's quite uh, a bit more sort of amorphous. Now, I think the, um, the, the other point you made is, uh, is right on as well. How do we, our view is, and what we found is that you can find mobilizers in almost any organization. Now, I think every salesperson listening to this podcast and every, every marketer would say they can name customers where they are pretty sure there's not a single mobilizer who works in that company <laughs> because, again, they may be committed to mediocrity or to the status quo. And that may well be, but generally speaking, we found that while they may be in fewer numbers, you can find them in almost any company because, again, what they're reacting to is the power of the idea that you put on the table. Now, it also, though, is true that certain companies, I think, are more open um, to uh, to being to rethinking things and being provoked. And so, we've thought a lot about um, how do you do, uh, look for events or changes in the customers' world, whether that's you know a, a giant shift in there that's happened, uh, an upstart competitors come in and stolen a lot of share from the the legacy um, players, whether it's um, a CEO change, uh, a big merger or acquisition. Some of these things that we kind of classically know um, create an occasion for disruption that yields to um, uh, more people being more open to new ideas than perhaps they were when things are great, things are working pretty well, we're just in execution mode. But nevertheless, I think even if you take those, those companies you say, wow, these guys are not progressive, there are not very many people willing to rock the boat, we still find mobilizers within, the, within those companies. It's really a function of, um, having those ideas um, and uh, and using those as kind of the, if you will, the mobilizer dog whistle to 
get them to come out of the woodwork uh, to engage with your idea, figure out what are the places where these mobilizers learn, um, how do we engage with compelling content. And what we find is that your best salespeople are able to do that even in those seemingly very conservative kind of steady as you go organizations, just as they are in the very, you know, fast moving change oriented uh, kind of organizations as well. So if the salesperson is trying to get involved in the customer journey at an earlier point by maybe providing some, some challenges or some insights and we're, mm-hmm. we're trying to go after those mobilizers, what's the implication uh, for marketing then? How does marketing need to yeah. pitch in and, and do a better job at maybe opening some of those doors? Yeah, that's right. You know, the, um, it's a great question. One of the, uh, the things that people said about uh, Challenger was that in some ways Challenger was a, a book about sales that kind of uh, was an accidental book about marketing too. Um, you know, but I think this book is much more purposefully about marketing. In fact, we've had a few folks who, some of the early kind of um, uh, folks out there, some of the bloggers and reviewers who've read it and said, you know, I think the primary audience for this is really the CMO more than the CSO, which, is, which I think is kind of gratifying to hear because we didn't necessarily write it that, that way. We wrote it to be uh, consumed equally by the CMO and CSO and his, his or her teams. But it's cool to see that people see a really powerful um, marketing voice in this book as well and that the content in the book is really geared towards that marketing audience. Well, now, I, I, I want to, I actually, I want to, tee up your answer here with a quote from one of your co-authors. Sure. Uh, the upshot is, Challenger isn't a sales methodology, it's a commercial strategy. It That's affects right. yeah. what marketing yeah. and sales need to do individually and together. Yeah, that's exactly right. You know, we've, we said, and I don't know, I think there, there are members, or there are sort of uh, readers or, you know, folks who've heard the Challenger story when we told it. Um, uh, on the on you know at conferences and at um, at uh, on the big stage, um, who heard this? But I think there are many people for whom this message fell on deaf ears. Which is Challenger is as much about individual salesperson skills as it is about the organizational capability behind those salespeople. Mm-hmm. And a lot of that, when it comes down to it, is the role of marketing to to be the insight generation factory for the organization to really um, work with leadership to figure out what is it that makes us unique? Why should our customers buy from us instead of our competitors? How do we actually um, package that into compelling insights? And then how do we create a content marketing ecosystem that gives us you know, insights we can feed into the different places where we know our mobilizers are out there learning, social, um, conferences, um, et cetera, to go out and pull people into, our, uh, into the sales funnel. I, it's um, that was one of the messages we sent out, you know, we said many, many times, I said myself quite thousands of times to audiences and the number of people who I think really heard that message, I think is probably a lot smaller than what we intended. And so for this book, we really want to, I don't I wouldn't say set the record straight, but make, make it um, very, very clear that um, being a challenger organization is about being a challenger sales organization and a challenger marketing organization. It's about being a challenger commercial organization. And it really requires a rethink, not just about, um, how we go to market from a sales perspective, but also what kind of content should we be building from a marketing perspective? Where should we be engaging those customers? Um, how do we um, uh, measure, uh, uh, measure and track demand? What matters to us? Um, what's the difference between insight and thought leadership? And, and how do we have our content marketing strategy maybe wrong right now? Um, is it really geared towards being market? Is it, is it geared towards demonstrating to customers that we're smart or is it geared, to, geared toward demonstrating to customers that they're wrong, that they've missed something? Right. Is it really challenger messaging? And, and so again, I, and I think you're right. If you really, if you divvied up the pages in the book, I think you'd probably find as many, if not more pages for the, 
the CMO and their teams um, and real B2B marketing practitioners as you would uh, for the sales organization, which I think is a great thing. And hopefully we'll make make it uh, very, very clear to everyone reading it that it is about commercial transformation, not about a sales or a marketing thing individually. One of the things that, you know, this has certainly uh, been a cry that I think people have heard loud and clear they're getting it, but I don't think they have the answer necessarily. I mean, for a number of years, a lot of us have been saying, you know, you've got to, you've got to provide insight over information. Um, I think yeah. insight's actually the hardest thing in the world for a company to, to do, to provide, because, yeah. you know, again, most companies are very focused on selling my thing and selling my product. And so, yeah. you know, how do you actually methodically or systematically dig up uh, commercial insights that, that are going to be of, yeah. of, of use? So we actually in the book lay out a, um, a methodology for doing so, which um, is something we've worked on with a number of our uh, client organizations. There are two uh, cases that we use um, in the book. One of the really popular cases from Challenger Sale was the Granger, um, the Granger case. Uh, the two probably most popular cases I think in this book will be from Dentsply, who is a dental supply company, and then uh, from Xerox, um, specifically in their, uh, their education uh, division. And what we do is we walk through kind of piece by piece exactly what you said. How did they come up with a, an insight that changed the way the customers thought about their own business? And the, the framework we use um, is something we call um, constructing the mental model of the customer's world and trying to figure out um, at a very granular and specific level of detail, how do customers think about their own world right now? And uh, then by the same token, how you as a supplier fit into that world. And are there ways that we can connect our value proposition to certain underpinnings of their mental model? So I'll give you, um, uh, give you a quick example. Um, Dentsly, which, again, is one of the cases features in, featured in the book, um, this is a company that had, it comes up with many, many innovations um, uh, in the dental supply and dental equipment world. Uh, the case we profile is actually uh, when they around an, uh, a new product they launched, which was the world's first uh, ergonomic, cordless, lightweight um, uh, uh, wand uh, for use by dental hygienists. So, you know, you go to the dentist to get your teeth cleaned or, um, you know, uh, to get your teeth polished or whatever, and they use that heavy wand with the cord, and that's the thing they attach the drill bits to and the polishing equipment and the water pick and all that stuff. And, um, uh, and Dentify come up with the, fir- the world's first um, cordless version of that. It was super lightweight. It was ergonomic. It was cordless. And so they gave all their salespeople uh, one, they put it in an aluminum case, and they told them to go out to all their customers and, and sort of demo this new piece of equipment. Um, and then, you know, they take the thing out, and it was like the scene from Pulp Fiction where the light comes out of the briefcase, and they're, you know, <laughs> this thing is just beautiful, and it's fantastic, and wow, it feels great in your hand, and it, it's lightweight, and man, it's totally different. And what do you think the first question all the dentists asked about it uh, was? Does it cost more? <laughs> yeah, that's exactly right. How much does it cost? Yeah. And when they found out, it, and, and I'm taking a little poetic license here, but when they found out it cost twice as much as the current one they were using, yeah. guess what? They just bought some new drill bits for the yeah. old one. Yeah, all of a sudden um, it so, solved a problem they didn't know they had. <laughs> that's right. And so I think uh, what Dentify has to do is go back to the drawing board and they have to really think about how dentists think about their businesses. And what they were able to think about was, you know, some of the, um, some of the, what the customer's mental model is. And the, the key thing, the thing that drives everything that the dentist care, cares about is running a profitable dental practice. Now, the things that drive that are things like costs and providing effective patient care, um, uh, absenteeism of their staff and whether they, you know, have to cancel appointments and, uh, and things like that, uh, location and 
uh, and so on and so forth. And what they were able to do without going into too much detail, what Densply was able to do was figure out how that new twice as expensive, super cool new device actually solved uh, for part of the um, the customer's mental model in a, in a way they didn't expect before. And here's how they did it. They actually figured out that then uh, when you look at um, uh, employee turnover and disengagement, um, uh, uh, healthcare costs, et cetera, for their staff, absenteeism, things like that, it turns out the number one driver of that um, is, uh, is hygienist uh, absenteeism due, due to things like um, uh, wrist injuries, carpal tunnel syndrome, back injuries, shoulder injuries, et cetera. The number one driver of those repetitive stress injuries or repetitive motion injuries for hygienists is actually the nature of the equipment they use and the awkward angle with which they have to hold things like that heavy corded wand. Um, so they were able to tie exactly a business driver, which was absenteeism and healthcare costs and staff engagement, which drives profitability of their dental practice to the equipment that those hygienists use and therefore create a really compelling case where they could show up and say, hey, we've developed this first lightweight ergonomic um, cordless drill, which has actually been clinically shown to reduce stress on the hygienist's wrists, on their back, on their shoulders, which means fewer days out of the office because you got to go see the chiropractor. It means lower healthcare costs, um, uh, disability costs for you as a, um, somebody who runs a practice. It actually will solve a human resources problem, a talent problem, that is plaguing you right now, and you just assume was a, a fact of doing business in the in the dental world or in the you know the dental practice world. So hopefully, it gives you a sense of you know how they really unpack this. It was really hard work, and we walked through the framework they used, uh, the data they collected, and the the before and after pitch where they showed up and just said, "Hey, here's this cool, sexy new device that is twice as much money. It didn't sell a whole lot. So now, way like you said, it was the old way of selling, a very product and feature focused. To now walking in and saying, "Hey, we want to have a conversation." about absenteeism, hygienist absenteeism, and how that's affecting your ability to run a profitable dental practice. And when they could demonstrate that the number one driver of absenteeism was the old equipment that they were using, which put stress on the hygienist's body, which drove up absenteeism, healthcare costs, um, workers' comp, things like that, uh, and how they could actually solve for that with a new wand, the, the sales of the device took off uh, in a way that, um, that they just weren't before. And they didn't change anything about what they were selling. As we talked about in Chandra, they changed how they sold it. And the work that happened here was driven um, by the commercial organization, sales and marketing, working together to deconstruct the customer's mental model, put together a new sales pitch that actually showed the customer um, a way to think differently about their own business and managing their own business, and then gave them a new way to think about Densply as a supplier to help them accomplish that. Yeah, and I think as a salesperson, I mean, I sell marketing services, and anytime we can get somebody to look at what we're pitching as an investment instead of a cost. Um, you know, ha- you're yep. halfway there. <laughs> uh, you have produced exactly. Exactly. Uh, you, you've produced some great tools uh, and resources to go along with the book uh, that people can find at cebglobal.com. Um, I really like the uh, the 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 role guides. I think uh, you call them. Um, so, are, is there anywhere else you want to send people to to find some uh, some more information about the book or some of these uh, bonuses? Yeah, no, you hit on the you hit on the main website. Um, the, the Challenger customer um, uh, website is on our cebglobal.com uh, company website. You can uh, Google or, or Bing or whatever your search engine of choice is. I don't want to offend anybody listening to the call, parts of the podcast. Um, look for the Challenger customer um, or just go to cebglobal.com. And you're right, there's a, a sort of treasure trove of tools. Um, we really tried hard to make this book um, and the work here super actionable. So as you said, 
Um, we offer um, on there a mobilizer identification tool, which is a sort of a one-pager. It's in the book. There's also a soft copy on the website that you can use and customize to help your salespeople and your marketers think about how we find our mobilizers, um, uh, different frameworks for auditing your current car- content marketing um, and the content you're putting out there, uh, and uh, effectively rationalizing uh, the content you put out there to really focus on what are the challenge or insights and what can we use to engage our customers. So lots of great practical tools out there. Definitely encourage everyone to go to the, that site you mentioned um, uh, to download this. Great. So we are uh, finishing up with uh, Matt Dixon, the uh, one of the co-authors of The Challenger Customer, Selling to the Hidden Influencer Who Can Multiply Your Results. So, Matt, thanks for joining me. Hopefully we'll see you out there on the road. Josh, thanks again.